you know how when you, you can't see your own child grow, you, the, uh, they look like they're the same height, and then someone who uh, comes in goes, oh my goodness, look at that, what happened? Because they don't see them very often. That's how I feel today when I'm here. I'm not here very often, and uh, whether it's coming in, uh, I was able to come in early, and uh, just to be here during setup or during adult Bible study or even in worship, I feel the growth of maturity in among some of you that is... It almost makes the sermon feel shallow to me right now. So uh, I don't know. I don't know quite. I'm not expressing it well because I I didn't think about saying anything, except uh, there's some young families here who are doing a lot in the Lord, uh, and you know since I'm normally up in the big house. <laughs> That kind of maturity, we're not calling people out for that sort of maturity the way you're serving. And uh, it's just really awesome for me to see. It's really awesome. So anyway, I probably said that half as well as I should have. Um, so take it and double it. <laughs> That's what I mean. I do have one, I, I, one announcement before we turn to the message. On August 31st, that's this coming Wednesday night, is an evening to pray and tell, share stories of our trip to Burkina Faso and pray around it. By this coming Wednesday, I mean not this Wednesday, the next Wednesday. Yeah, the 31st. Thank you. So the 31st, next Wednesday. Uh, share, we're going to share stories about uh, the trip and pray. We'll also take time to pray. There's several people uh, from our church and another going to Haiti in September, so we'll spend some time praying for them. But it's a, it's a great opportunity for you to hear other voices uh, on the trip, not just Eric's or even mine, but some of the other people who are on the trip. You know, Luke and Devin, who are in nursery right now, Luke was also on the trip, so you, wanna, you might want to ask. But we had 10 of us in total, so a lot of different perspectives. And this is what I can think to share with you now that stood out to me. When, when, I, when we arrived, and I don't know, Eric, what you've shared, but when we arrived uh, into Burkina Faso, our first several days were what I felt, uh, what I would describe as pastor-centric. They were ready to use me, the pastor, in ways that even I wasn't comfortable with. You know, I arrived, hey, can you baptize these 20 people and do Lord's Supper? Uh, you know, in a church you've never been in, in a language you've never spoken, uh, at a temperature that you've never uh, worshipped in, <laughs> go do that. Y you know, and there was a, there was a, they had a, a pretty concrete connection to the usefulness of a pastor, but my perception in the early days of our week there was they didn't know, they didn't know how to value or appreciate the team. And so that was my prayer going in I mean, as we were going through the first several days, it's, dear Lord, I mean, just very honestly, don't allow this trip to be a bust, please. I'd hate, hate to bring normal folks from our church to this country and for them to go home going, well, the pastor certainly did a lot, but I took pictures. And 
that prayer kind of grew in severity for the first couple days because it was a lot of, can the pastor do this, can the pastor do that? But it finally broke. And there was a moment where it was a day in the afternoon in one of our churches that we, that we really connect with well. Uh, and the pastor, his name is Vincent, he asked, would you, we're going to invite our fellowship back. And the fellowship that you'll see, by the way, is children and about 75% women because of various things, various reasons. But can, they're going to come back, and can you talk with them about discipleship? about the, the life we walk in the Lord. And so we said, oh, okay, what we'll do is uh, we'll share a few stories and we'll kind of break them up into teams. And he kind of went, oh, okay, that's fine. So I spoke for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes maybe. And what we, what we did to prepare for it is that our whole team sat down and we said, let's find stories and narratives in the Bible that talk about discipleship. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the way that Jesus turns to the disciples and says, you feed them. Right? Somebody had that story. You did? Okay. It's, we, and we split the stories up. We, here's 15 of them. And we said, okay, you take that one, you take that one. And we just split them up. And for about an hour, we prepped. You know, we, we did our own re- reading and reading just to say, this way I could share with my group, I could share the story and we could ask some questions. Okay, that's something you could do. I mean, we went, didn't know the story, Studied the story, prayed, 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 got ready to share the story. You can do that. And so I shared for about 10 minutes, and then I said, okay, we're going to break up into groups. And uh, we did that, and I went over to the pastor. As these, it was very awkward. You can tell uh, in this village they have never broken up into groups to talk about anything in the history of their history. Okay, it was the first grouping, subgrouping of the group ever. And so it took a little while, and it was a little bit awkward, and we was in three groups. And I went over to the pastor, and I said, is, how, is this okay? Is this what you wanted? And he said, uh, kind of what I feared, he said, yeah, but man, I wish you'd have spoken the whole time. Now we have to deal with this group thing. And he said it very cloudy dayish. <laughs> Just... So... And I, I wasn't even involved in the group thing, so I just went and sat down to watch. And so our, the other nine members of our team, three in each group, started sharing stories. And the pastor came over to one of the groups I was sitting next to, and he ended up serving as a translator because he can hear English very well. So he would translate into, into Moray. And it was going, and, and oh, and I, I'm not telling this well. Because he was so down, because he poo-pooed our groups, so much. I said, well, we'll just do it for about a half hour, and then if you want me to say more, we'll get back together again, and I'll say some more. And he said, yeah, do that. That We need that. So I was like, okay, fine. So we're in our groups, and he ends up translating for one of the groups, and the time approaches that we have to reconvene. And being the first reconvening in the history of this, it's going to take a while, so... I went over to this pastor, and I said, it's about time. And he shooed me away. He said, go away, go away. This is way too much fun. He was loving what our teams were doing uh, over the moon. He, th- this was to him. He'd never seen, he had never seen people reading the story saying he'd never seen a Sunday school class. 
is just, is almost how I felt. I don't have the right, I don't know what he'd never seen. He didn't tell me in his own words. But what we were doing was absolutely novel to him and profound. That we were asking questions and that this group of people who 75% can't read, they can't even read in their own language. And they were responding in their heart language through translators of what it means to follow Christ through the telling of these stories. And so he said, go away, go away, go away. And I did, man. I went down and sat down with the biggest smile and I just worshiped the Lord. Like, Lord, you've used our team in a mighty way. And uh, so he said, went up later and I said, I think we're at our time. Uh, because he was pretty careful with the time. And he said, so he kind of yelled out, hey, 10 more minutes. Everybody start wrapping up. It's about 10 more minutes maybe five. And the other teams wrapped up, but his team kept going because he was, he was just the best. And at the end of the day, he came to us and he said, I've never seen this. We need more of this. Please come back and do this. And I want to say, like, that was an environment where the pastor did nothing. And uh, you can do that. And it is of great value to their fellowship. So I say that as a chance to come out and pray with us, come hear other stories, other people share. Um, also, there's a trip in January uh, that, you know, if, if your schedule is flexible, if you're, especially if you're in school and you have the space uh, during winter term, we'll go back and we're going to do this very thing. What they said is, would you come back and just do that as a staple? So uh, consider that. Okay. The sermon. Uh, we're in a series uh, entitled Friendship. We're going to spend uh, four weeks on the subject of friendship. In prepping for this, I realized it's rare we speak about friendship from Scripture. We talk about love. We talk about romance or marriage. Those sorts of things. But when we get to the subject of friendship, very often we skip over it. We leave it assumed, like, you know how to be a friend. And we assume these, maybe you might say these deeper reflections of it, like a husband and a wife. But it's really important, if we're assuming friendship very often, we probably should know about it, uh, because it's a big deal. So that's, we're going to spend four weeks on friendship. And I would define friendship, this is a simple definition, this theme will kind of carry us through the weeks is friendship is the process of entrusting yourself to someone in relationship. You giving yourself measure by measure inside of a relationship. That's what it, it means to be a friend. And so each week we'll look, so I think last week you looked at adversity, a friend is for adversity. This week we're going to look at a, a friendship is a deep concept, not a shallow concept, and we'll build, uh, build, build on them. But when we talk about friends, uh, it's difficult to talk about friends in 2016 without dealing with the cultural phenomenon of social media. Because a lot of weird things have happened to the word friend. Uh, for one, it's become a verb. You know, I friended you. Which is very different from I am your friend. It, it, the two have very little to do with one another. Or could. So uh, I want to spend a little bit of time just kind of 
and I'm not down on social media, right? It, it's a thing, and a thing can be a good thing or a bad thing. So it's just a thing. Nonetheless, it's a thing that's playing around with a word that we're going to use a lot. So uh, I, I do want to kind of shake the tree around social media and Facebook and these sorts of things and help us think. I'm going to show you a quick video. This video uh, is a commercial. It's a Toyota Venza commercial from 2011 that I, made me crack up when I saw it five years ago. And it's uh, a younger lady wishing her parents uh, could have friends like she does. Okay, so hopefully it works, right? Let's see what happens. I read an article, well, I read the majority of an article online about how older people are becoming more and more antisocial. So I was really aggressive with my parents about joining Facebook. My parents are up to 19 friends now. I have 687 friends. This is living. What? That is not a real puppy. That's too small to be a real puppy. That's it. Toyota Venza. Keep on rolling. So the power of subliminal, if you guys all go buy Venzas, I'll realize I've failed here, you know. Uh, but I think you see the heart there is here are these parents, uh, this husband and wife, having fun with others outside, riding bikes, doing things, uh, and yet... And this young lady's definition of friendship is kind of behind the screen. There's a lot that's been written on this lately. Uh, one author in the New York Times suggested that in this, specifically with the concept of friendship, that it, uh, it has, that social media has upended the word. Um, she referred to this idea of reversification. That's the phrase she used. Um, she adopted this, where the word and the initial meaning of a word gets pulled into some sort of innovation, like, like Facebook in this case, friend, and when it finally spits out the other end, it has the near opposite meaning of its original intent. And if you think about it, if you go into Facebook and you want to reflect your sexual orientation, you have about 58 nuanced options. And if you want to describe your relationship status, I think you have about 11 or 12. That's fairly nuanced. Now, if you want to describe your connection with every other human being on the face of the earth, you have one choice. Are they a friend or not? That's how flat this notion's become. Another thing about social media that's worth thinking about with friends is you get to choose the version of yourself that you put forth, and you get to decide the exact measure of this yourself that you give away. So it's a very self-limited, self-screened, maybe self-advertised, depending on how stuck in it you are, expression of friendship. So even if somebody who's genuinely friends with you on social media is friends of the version of yourself that you've agreed to let them know, which is we should note. Okay, this morning we're going to be in Proverbs uh, 18 as we study friendship. And in light of sort of what I just said about social media is this notion of real friendship is a deep concept, not a shallow concept. And so we're going to spend this morning reviving the notion. And the, the passage will be behind me. Uh, but I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open, because we might look at another verse in Proverbs 18 along the way. 
But the verse that I'm going to spend some time on this morning is Proverbs 18, verse 24, which says this, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It's the last verse in the chapter. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, for the purposes of this morning, I want to kind of take control or take hold of two words in the proverb and sort of own them for a certain purpose. The word companion, we could think all things about the word companion. Today, I'm asking us to think about it in one specific way. Companion equates to shallow relationship. That's what the proverb is saying. So I'm not changing the meaning of the proverb, I'm clarifying the meaning of the proverb. In this proverb... It's using the word companion to equate to shallow, okay? It doesn't really care about the nature of the companions. We're not, we don't need to know if these companions are good companions or healthy companions or if they're kind of buffoon companions. We don't need to know any of that. The equation in the proverb is companion is shallow. Likewise, friend is deep. That's the meaning of the proverb. This proverb is a proverb of relational depth. That's what it's expressing saying a lot of shallow friends do not make up for the value of one really good friend. Or a lot of shallow companions, we'll try to protect the word, companions being shallow do not account for friends. The quantity of shallow does not add up to the quality of a deep relationship. You could think of it this way, a little bit in reverse. The distributive property does not work with friendship. You can't take the issues that really matter in your life, the ones that sort of move you and grow you and develop you, you can't take those issues and chop them up into a hundred equal-sized parts and farm them out to your companions and expect that they're going to minister. You know, if, you, if your boyfriend dumps you and you're broken up about it, you can't take that grief and shame and confusion and put it on the cutting board and then farm it out bite-sized to all your companions and expect to be cared for the same way that if you just dumped on a friend. That's what friends are for. And I'm not trying to be binary about it, right? People can have companions and friends, but I am trying to be uh, narrow in the sense of appreciating friendship here. I'll give you another example. I think most of us have probably at some point in our life uh, been in an office or work setting where somebody gets sick and they end up in the hospital and the card comes around. You know what I'm talking about? The card? The get well card? Everybody has to sign the get well card? And your whole floor, your department, or whatever it is that you're part of, everybody's signing it. And if, if you're part of a big group of people, sometimes the card is a, big, a physically big card. And you get it, and the first thing you do is you look at what other people wrote. Because you're like, I don't want to like, say the same thing, but I also don't want to be too different. Or, you know, if, if you are a Christian, you're like, how religious am I allowed to be here? What, what are the rules of the card? And then where should I put my signature in the card to balance its aesthetic appearance? Those are the things I'm always dealing with. Yeah. Oh, and oh, I hope they feel better. But really, what can I write, and where should I write it? You know? You know? And this big card ends up going to the, the recovery room at the hospital, sitting at Christiana, and it sits on the windowsill. 
And I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm not saying that the person doesn't appreciate it. I'm saying it does not substitute for the friend who's been there for five hours sitting by the bed. In, in all the hospital visitations I've ever made, no one, I've never seen someone in the bed say to their friend, can you scoot a little to the left so I can see the card? <laughs> you just lean that way. Ah, because the card of a hundred hope you feel betters from my companions is really, really caring for my needs right now. He, the sum of shallow does not equal the quality of deep. So why, I'm going to ask just this question, and the reason I'm asking this question is just to help us reflect about how we engage in relationship. So I'm going to kind of create, I don't want to say artificial because there's people like this, but maybe a slightly more extreme expression uh, just to help us think. But why might someone opt for a life of companionship, shallow relationships, instead of friendship? instead of farming and in real and trusting relationships with someone? Why, why would somebody do that? And, and I think we can all appreciate that some people bias in one direction or another. So why might someone bias maybe away from real relationships towards the shallow companionship that we're talking about? Here's, here's three thoughts. First of all, companionship offers more than it costs you. That's the beauty of companionship. Companionship is fun. It's value relationship. You know, Monday Night Football at Buffalo Wild Wings with the guys. I get fun and I give very little. It's, it's, it's just fast food relationship. And in those settings, you know, in those companionship settings, you, you, can, you can choose how much of yourself you give and you can choose how much of yourself is committed to the other person. That's the, that's the attraction. That's the, very, that's the surface attraction of companionship. So, you know, if you were that person who goes to the Monday night Buffalo Wild Wings group of guys, and you're sitting there, and you're watching the game, and you say to Fred, you say, hey, where's Bill? And Fred goes, oh, yeah, uh, Bill's not going to be here anymore. He lost his job. You go, ooh, that's a bummer. So is he coming next week? No, he's picked up another shift. He's working night shift now. Doubles to keep it. You're like, hmm, that's rough. Oh, did you see that play? You do that. And I'm not saying we do that because we're heartless. We do that because they're companions. And I mean, maybe we don't, shouldn't do that, right? <laughs> but I'm, I'm painting a picture of... That is the attraction, in large part, to companionship. It's value relationship. And if, if a person were that alone, or if a person was avoiding friendship and living in the shallow, we should ask questions. Because God didn't make us. And we sang today, you have called me higher. You have called me deeper. Like God didn't make us for value. God made us for his glory. And God made us for him and for other people. So to live there, to live in that environment, speaks dysfunction. 
Here's another reason why someone might incline themselves toward companionship over friendship. Companionship is most often self-focused, and friendship is very often other-focused. Companionship makes me feel good about myself. When I'm with that crowd, I must be acceptable because they've accepted me. I'm somebody because I'm with them. That companionship has that tribal power to it of I'm traveling with them. And that feeds our desire to think well of ourselves. That's what's happening in companionship is there's a, a kind of something that's pushed our way of you're important because you're with them. You matter because you're with them. You are like them. That, that, the power of, of affinity feeds us. Whereas in friendship, rather than us simply feeling better about ourselves, we actually encounter our true self. This is the double-edged sort of real friendship. In real friendship, you will at some point be called to either give something of yourself that is just uncomfortable enough that you find your own weakness in it. Why, why, why can I not forgive this person? Well, you've just encountered yourself. Or in real friendship, your friend will tell you something about yourself that you don't want to know. They'll say, you know, when you say that, it's annoying. You annoy people when you do that. Like, now, a good friend will probably fail saying that clearly the first eight times, but eventually they'll get to it, right? Or you, when you joke that way about me, you, I feel small. Why do you do that? Companionship is not going to encounter you. You'll, you'll feel good about yourself. Friendship is going to find you out. That's another reason why I think people sometimes gravitate away from real friendship. If you think of uh, maybe an area in your life where you struggle with an addiction or a, a recurring burden even, like fear, or... Uh, there's an, a loss in your life that just has a resounding ability to follow you throughout the week, like, you know, a divorce or a death in the family or sickness. If you don't have someone that you feel like you can go to, it may be a sign that you're living amongst companions. Because a friend would be there for that. Okay, here is uh, the third, maybe the third reason why someone might be inclined towards uh, companionship over friendship is, is that companionship masks the isolationist. Someone who is actually an isolationist can hide behind companions. They can appear normal because they have this crowd of pseudo-friends. And because, especially in our age where we have dumbed down the word friend, to be very generic, someone who has lost the capacity for friendship can hide and appear normal. The very first verse of uh, Proverbs, Proverbs 18, Proverbs 18 verse 1 says, the isolated man pursues his own desires. It's interesting that that chapter opens up with the concept of isolation and ends with the concept of friendship. 
The isolated man pursues his own desires. There's someone who could actually, in their heart, say, I don't have a need for friends. I don't need friends. Like, I'm good. I'm, I'm fine. I'm autonomous. I'm sufficient. I'm all of these things. That could be their notion, and it could be hiding beneath this inch-deep surface of companionship that no one could even, no one but a friend might be able to diagnose. And, you know, there's several reasons someone might do this. One, someone who is profoundly self-centered might, might adopt this attitude. I don't, need some, I don't need friends. I've got good income. I've got a nice car. I've, I enjoy depending on their choices in life, all the physical desire that I need at the level of companionship. I can have what I want without going deep. Maybe there's people who are so self-centered that that's where this sort of sinful disposition is coming from. I think the the other origin of this attitude comes from people who are so severely scarred by others. Uh... I'll give you an example. Do I have time for an example? What time do I have to be done with? 11.30? Okay, yeah. So I have a friend, uh, and I just spent some time on vacation with him. He is a realtor for fun. He's a, on the side, he does realty to help people out. He makes money, too. But uh, So he's a, he's, a, he's a fighter pilot, but for fun, he does realty. Uh, a little odd. Um, so he was helping out this family and his, his wife was bemoaning this family because they were so thankless, very thankless people. And he had, he had gotten filthy dirty in order to help them sell their home. They had a, ba- a small backyard and they had several dogs and they had never scooped, ever, ever. You know, he was just like, imagine a thousand landmines <laughs> in the backyard. And he would say to them, like, well, people would say on their feedback, like, I can't buy this house. It's got this backyard of disaster. Uh, but they, they didn't move, so he did it. He and his son went and cleaned the whole backyard, right, in order to move the house. And they never really said thank you. So his wife was complaining, just, you know, on behalf of her husband. But he said something that I just thought was so full of Christ as he said it. He was just reflecting and he said, well, you know, I don't think that they know how to say thank you anymore. And he described, he said, they are, um, it was a severely obese family. I mean, really obese. And he, he said, his impression was they have probably been hurt by people so many times in their life that they, they are entirely shut out. They won't give any bit of themselves. And so he, he, he sort of said, I'm sure they were thankful, they just didn't know how to say it. And I thought, man, for one, I was grateful to see Christ in my friend, to have the patience of the Spirit, to care more about them, to see that. But I think people can become isolationists for one of those several reasons. They can either be so self-centered as to not think they need someone or they can be so hurt. And either way, one's pitiable, one's, one makes us grieve, the other is, is really dangerous and needs to be pointed out. Right? Both of those run the risk of missing God in really important ways. How is it possible that someone can feel so autonomous in this world and yet have a deep grasp of what Jesus has done for them? Like, I, I struggle to understand that. 
that's to, to know someone who has so little need of people, so little need of relational connection, so little need of human depth, and yet have an accurate appreciation for their growing. You know, the more you know Jesus, the more you appreciate your dependency upon him. So how can someone have a growing relationship with Christ and a winnowing, a winnowing sense of need of others? It's, counter, it's, it's contrary to the nature of the gospel. As we know the Lord better, we love people more. In addition for that person, how can someone think, or have we ever stopped to think that God cares way more about your ability to display friendship than whether or not you have one? We always think, I'd like to have a friend. You know, it's a joy to have a friend. It's a blessing to have a friend. But it is noble and virtuous to be a friend. Do you not think that the Lord is very concerned about his children being able to exhibit friendship in real ways to a world that does not know he's a friend? I mean, think of the Christian life. How much of the Christian life fits within the dimensions of friendship? So when we isolate ourselves... There is a self-centered nature to it because we miss the fact that God is looking to us to exhibit friendship when usually we're thinking, I'd like to have a friend. For Christians, you, you will very often find that you are a part of imbalanced friends where you're the better friend. And I would say, yeah, that's, that is the default run-of-the-mill expectation for the children of God. You should be a better friend. Because he's called us to it. I'll give you one, as I close here, I'll give you one image in the New Testament. Well, it won't be one image, but one description in the New Testament that I think describes friendship really well. And that is the picture of Jesus and the 12 people we call the disciples. And we call, we've chosen to call them disciples or the apostles um, and in doing so, I think we've missed the reality that they were friends of Jesus. We could say this is a picture, this is a story of Jesus and his 12 friends because they were more than companions. There were plenty of time that Jesus had companions and usually when he saw a field of companions, he would say something really objectionable so they'd leave because he was working on friendship. I mean, Jesus, look at the way that Jesus exhibits friendship. And we can say, out of balance with what he receives. Like, to the, to the Christian mind that wants some equality of felt friendship versus given friendship, I have to say that does not jive with the ministry of Jesus Christ to which you're being called. He came to people who were not his friend and gave overwhelming friendship. He poured his life out. He shared his life with them. He washes their feet. He leans on them. He doesn't isolate himself. I mean, there's occasions he prays by himself, but he doesn't isolate himself. His 12 friends know what's on his heart. I would almost say, and I suppose I can, though it's still mysterious to me, he seems to need them in the garden. When he grabs Peter, James, and John and says, pray for me, like, it's, I feel untheological to say that Jesus needed his friends. 
That is the picture. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, this is what he said. After he had washed their feet, after he had given them his body and his blood, after all of that, he says to them, this is John 15, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he goes on to say, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I've made known to you. He's saying, everything I know, I've, I've told you. Everything I have, I've shared with you. Everything I am, I've given you. Our friendship isn't trusting ourselves. We cannot understand the Christian life if we don't understand friendship. And friendship's not dependent upon, it may be strengthened by the activities of companionship, but it is deeper. And there is no substitute for it. Allow me to pray. Lord, as we consider your word and as we consider this idea of friendship and what you would have us do, I, I pray first that uh, we would be reminded that you have chosen to become friends of us. that you sent your son to the earth, you sent your son to mankind to befriend mankind who was in the midst of hostility with you. Lord, and we recognize none of us were born your friends. We came out of the womb uh, thoughtful of ourselves and we have had to learn through your mercy. You, the scriptures say it's your kindness that's led us to repentance. Lord, through your kind friendship with us, you have drawn us to yourself. And for that, we're grateful. And I pray, Lord, I pray in very real ways we might be moved to display that sort of friendship with others without the need of feedback from them, without getting equivalent friendship back. Lord, through your power, help us to be friends, good friends. And Lord, I pray that you would encounter the, all of us or those of us who in some ways are hiding uh, ourselves away from others through substitutes like companionship. Father, for the lonely in this room, I pray you would send them a friend in Christ. I pray that they would receive the blessing of someone who's willing to entrust themselves to them. Lord, and for the person in this room who has, who you call, I pray you give them the strength to give themselves over. Because that's what you've done for us. And I pray this, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.